What's up ASM? So glad that you're here joining us for our continuation in this series called The Gospel of John That You May Believe. Today's passage is a little interesting and we're going to get into why that is in just a moment. But if you have your Bible, you're going to go ahead and turn to John chapter 7 verse 53 through 8. 11. And here's what my Bible says. This is looking at the NIV, and it has some subscript here that says the earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John 7:53 through 8 verse 11. A few manuscripts include the verses wholly or in part after John 7:36, John 21:25, Luke 21.38 or Luke 24.53. Now, there's a few things we just got to understand here. Perhaps your Bible says something like that. Perhaps it's completely italicized, the whole passage itself. Perhaps it's just been removed from the order of Scripture and it's at the bottom in a footnote by itself. Some completely omit this passage altogether. And what we have to understand is some history behind the Bible itself. And what we know is that this passage was missing from the earliest Greek manuscripts we have of Scripture. So, this doesn't seem also Johannine or like it was written by John, just in the very nature sentence structure, the way that the story is formulated. And it's kind of sitting in an awkward spot because you could literally read 7.52 and jump to 8.12 and it's like the story continues. This story that we're looking at kind of presses pause and does something different. So it doesn't quite fit and the early Eastern church didn't actually use this in their teaching for the first over thousand years. Whereas the Western early church, their tradition, they started using this sometime in the mid-300s. Now, what we know about this passage is that it wasn't in any of those early manuscripts, but it started to appear in manuscripts around 350 AD. So why would we even teach this passage? First of all, let me say, I think that this passage is authoritative, but it doesn't carry the same type of authoritative nature as the rest of the book of John because it's probably not written by the apostle himself. But we have reason to believe that this actually happened. One, most scholars really believe that this story did indeed happen. And it was likely a story that was passed down orally from person to person in church tradition until it was written down and then placed here in the book of John. And it's seen other times placed in the Gospel of Luke. But what we hear in the book of John, there's something that John says to us as the readers, which is that we don't actually have enough volumes to contain all that Jesus did in his earthly ministry. Not everything that Jesus did in his earthly ministry is recorded in the scriptures. We're given a lot of the high points and we're given the things that stuck out to the gospel writers. And so this is likely something that did indeed happen. And the reason that we teach it is that this story does not actually conflict with the rest of the biblical narrative and storyline of the gospels. And we're going to see how we can back this story up with things that happened elsewhere in the gospels. But when I say it doesn't conflict, we're going to see things that are actually themes throughout the book of John and the other gospels, is that Jesus is elevating himself above the Mosaic law. We're going to see that Jesus is exercising extreme grace 
in the face of extreme legalism, we're going to see that Jesus is standing up to the religious leaders' veiled piety. This idea of what Jesus calls them is whitewashed tombs, where they are beautiful on the outside, adorned. All their actions are right, but their hearts are dead. They're far from God. And we're going to see Jesus' admonition to, quote, sin no more or stop sinning. This is a beautiful story that we're about to read and one that has deeply impacted the church for over 2,000 years and it speaks beautifully to the grace that Jesus offers. So our big idea is this. Our big idea is that Jesus accepts us where we are and loves us too much to leave us there. If you will now turn back with me John 7 53 through 8 11. Let's read it. Then they all went home. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say. They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground in the dust with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground, At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Now, We have to have some background here. They have her. They caught her. They have got her dead to rights. She has actually done what they claim that she has done. She's guilty. We need to understand that. There's a problem, though, is that they're claiming to follow the law. And in the law, what we find is that if you know someone is about to sin, you see them going to sin, you see that they're about to fall into sin, you are supposed to warn them as a brother or sister so that they might avoid that sin and pursue righteousness. We're supposed to have each other's backs. And that's not what they did. Virtually the only way to catch someone in sexual sin is to catch them in the act. It's to lay in wait and entrap them. Which means they either waited in a closet and jumped out and said, Aha! Or they watched these two people, a man and a woman, entering a room. And it was obvious that something had occurred when they walked out. They knew and they were trying to trap her so that they could also try to trap Jesus. And Jesus in this story is surrounded. I want you to think about when you've asked a question maybe of somebody because let's be honest, we're not perfect and you wanted to make that person look stupid because you knew they didn't know the answer, but you asked them in front of other people to make them look foolish. That's exactly what they're trying to do here. They're trying to embarrass Jesus. And Jesus' response is one of my favorite things in the Gospel of John in this passage. He says nothing to them. 
That's how he starts. He literally doesn't even acknowledge what they're saying. People are kind of split on what Jesus is doing, right? He stoops down, he starts writing in the dust, and we have to ask the question, what in the world is he doing? They're split on this. Some people think that what Jesus is doing is he's writing their sins, those Pharisees, those teachers of the law, he's writing their personal sins on the ground in front of them. And as they see their sins, that's why it says the older ones walk away first. They've lived more life. They've had more chances to sin. And so they are the ones who walk away. I think that's the strongest argument for why the older men leave first. We don't know if that's what Jesus is doing, but maybe. Some believe that Jesus wrote in the dirt, Jeremiah 17, 13, which says this, Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. In other words, they've abandoned God's heart for mercy in pursuit of this justice, this false justice that they hope for. And my personal favorite, only because I think it's kind of hilarious, uh, is that Jesus was just doodling and paying them no attention. In other words, your question is ridiculous, and the way in which you've done it is ridiculous. It doesn't warrant an answer from me. And so let's get to our points about what we see going on in this passage. Point number one is that we need to check our motives. I think this is something we all need to do. We all need to have a heart check. And I'm not calling us all Pharisees here, but we can easily slip into the heart posture that they embody in this passage that they show here. I mean, the the key points to this is that they are all law, no grace. And, And we need to see where this comes from in the law. They're not making this up. This is actually found in Deuteronomy 22.22. says, If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. Leviticus 20 verse 10. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. See, here's the problem, though. Do you notice something that's different about those passages, about the law and the law that they knew and what they did in action? It takes two two parties to commit this, this adultery, this sexual sin, and yet how many parties were brought before Jesus? Just one. Just the woman. See, only the woman was brought before Jesus because women at the time in this, in this day and age were actually seen as instigators in issues of infidelity. It was like, it was viewed as the woman's fault if adultery happened. Well, I'm sorry, I, I, it was just that she tricked me, she seduced me, so it's her fault. And here she stands, caught, condemned, guilty, and surrounded by a mob of angry men. And Jesus stands in opposition to their criticism. See, the Pharisees have not come to seek justice, but to trap Jesus. Jesus perceives it. He knows what they're doing. And the woman is just a pawn in their game. No one is showing care for her at this moment. The man's been set free. The woman stands condemned by these men. And they wanted Jesus to sabotage his grace talk by condemning her with them and therefore discrediting his his mission, his message, or to straight ignore their interpretation of the law, therefore discrediting him before everyone in the temple as though he's not keeping the law. They were looking to trap him. 
Now, I know in my own life, I've been far too hasty to judge others before checking my own heart. And what I want us to do is see here this kind of difference that we're seeing between Jesus and how he approaches the law and his heart for her, his compassion for this woman, and how the Pharisees view sin without checking themselves. The second thing is that Jesus answers with the law and with love. He doesn't say that what she's done is fine. He doesn't just go, oh, it's cool, don't worry about it, let her go. That's not what he says. Actually, what he's doing is something that we have a hard time doing. And I think it's because we are sinful and Jesus isn't, right? But we tend to approach others as though their sins are worse than ours. Like our sins are better. They're higher up on the list in terms of like they're not as bad. That other people's sins are worse. And that's just not the truth. They aren't better. They aren't lesser. They're just different John 8, verse 7, we go back to this. It says, when they kept on questioning him, right? So he's already been stooping in the ground from my interpretation, potentially just ignoring them. Um, It says, they kept on questioning him. He straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. See, Jesus is not saying here, nor anywhere else, that we can never judge sin as wrong unless we don't sin. I think that's a common misconception. We hear things like, judge not lest you be judged. That's not an admonition to not hold anyone accountable for things that they've done wrong. It's simply saying you need to check your heart posture first, which was our first point, right? No sin in that scenario could ever be seen as wrong. You could never tell someone that what they've done is not okay. It doesn't work as a basis for social justice. Jesus is not, is not advocating this. Th- this would mean that no criminals could ever be brought to justice if the prerequisite for being a judge was that you had to be sinless or without fault. It's just that there is a perfect judge and we need to recognize that we are not him. Jesus is calling for them to examine themselves and to approach with love and mercy. Something very similar happens, actually, in Matthew chapter 9, where he challenges them on their heart posture, and where he encourages the Pharisees, encourages a light word, where he calls the Pharisees out for following the law, but abandoning love. In Matthew 9, the Pharisees begin to question Jesus' disciples because Jesus goes to dinner with tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus knows what they're asking, knows what they're thinking, and he responds by quoting the Old Testament to them. Hosea 6, 6 to be exact. Matthew 9, verses 12 through 13. On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. And here he quotes Hosea. I want you to think about this for a minute. Because what he's doing is saying to a group of men who are religious leaders, who have the Old Testament, as we know it, memorized. Not like they can recall, oh yeah, it says somewhere this. Memorized. They know the law. They know it by heart. That is a depth of knowledge and memorization I cannot possibly fathom. They know it, but they don't understand it. And that's what Jesus is getting at. Here he goes in verse 13. But go and learn, these are very learned men, what this means. I desire mercy, 
not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. See, Jesus is calling them out and saying, what you want, what you want is extreme justice. But what you lack is mercy. What you are asking for is that we sacrifice someone else because of the sin you find in their lives, but you aren't bestowing upon them mercy. And I think the indication is that we should expect none. Now, point number three. Jesus desires more for us than we do for ourselves. I think so often we're just content. I mean, it's the common, the common thought today in our world. is like, you do you, I'll do me, do whatever you want, as long as we're not hurting anyone else. I mean, that just doesn't really work in practicality, first of all. And second of all, Jesus is telling us that he desires more for us than we do for ourselves. We see that in John 8, verses 10 through 11. Jesus straightened up and asked her. So he stands back up. They've all walked away. Woman, pause. Remember when Jesus called his mom woman just a few chapters ago? This is a term of endearment. He's telling her that he has an endearing posture toward her, that he is not condemning her already by the way that he is approaching her. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? See, I would imagine that she at this point had had her face down. She probably was not looking up and looking around. Maybe her eyes were closed. And, and she's just waiting for the stones to fly. She's waiting for it to happen. She looks up and they're gone. I cannot imagine what that must have felt like. Has anyone condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. I told you before, the reason that I teach this passage is because I believe that it is echoed all throughout the, the Gospels, I think that it stands with the rest of the Gospels and the message we hear is the sentiment is echoed from earlier in John chapter 5 where Jesus heals the lame man at the pool called Beautiful. And John five fourteen, Jesus runs back into this man again. He says this, See, you are well again. Stop sinning. See, Jesus shows immense compassion to this woman where none was expected. I mean, obviously, her accusers didn't expect him to offer forgiveness. They were hoping that, one, he would either destroy his own message of grace and forgiveness, and they were also equally hoping that he would join their ranks and he would condemn her. They were looking for a reason to trap her, but not, not only did they not expect it, but the woman herself likely did not expect to be let go. To experience grace and forgiveness, it was not expected by the accused. I mean, how many people uh, in our world, in your sphere of influence, in your circle of friends, view God as a great judge who's waiting to squash fun and condemn us, just waiting to, to judge us and punish us? And the reason that people think that is because they've met angry religious people like this woman. See, Jesus' grace and love, though, destroys this view. He is God in the flesh. He's the literal embodiment of God. His name is Emmanuel, God with us. 
We're going to see next week as we look at uh, the rest of chapter 8, this concept that Jesus says, if you want to know the Father, if you want to know what God is like, then you must know me, you must know the Son, the one who embodies all that he is and is with you. See, Jesus' standard is, is not to abolish the law, to get rid of it, to get rid of the law of Moses, to get rid of the rules. The rules are there so that we know what it looks like to live a beautiful life, to live the life as God intended. But he has come actually to fulfill also the intention that has existed since the fall, that to follow God, we also need to lean on his loving mercy and forgiveness for our shortcomings. See, Jesus loved her as she was. In that moment, she was caught. She was guilty. She was without hope. But Jesus also gave her what she needed, forgiveness, grace, mercy, and restored hope in future. She literally went from somebody who was dead, waiting for the stones to fall. She considered herself dead, I'm sure, in this moment, just waiting for it to happen to someone who has given her life back. And that is our story, that Jesus has come to give us life. And Jesus gave her a new path that she could follow in his way and pursue righteousness. He said, go and leave your life of sin. See, don't you think that this woman, like we, who have been forgiven so much, who have not stood condemned but been seen with compassion by our Savior, don't you think she would have left this encounter changed forever? So because our big idea is that Jesus accepts us where we are, but he loves us too much to leave us there. Our questions as we we close out this video, uh, again, I always want to ask you, why does any of this matter? Why does this matter to you? Why does it matter to me? What's the point? But also, what sin potentially are you clinging to that Jesus is inviting you to leave and follow him? And how can we pursue the heart of Jesus that's modeled in this passage? My my last question is so important. If you're watching this at home, have you accepted the same grace and forgiveness of your sins that Jesus offers this woman? Because if you haven't, my prayer for you is that you would accept what Christ has done for you. That he was, he died, he was buried, he rose again so that you don't stand condemned, but you could take his offer of eternal life and restoration with God. If you have questions about any of this stuff, please feel free to reach out to us here at ASM. We love you guys and we'll see you next week.